Hello, and welcome to another edition of Eight More Miles, the Louisville Metro Council District 8 podcast. This is Councilman Brandon Cohn. It is Friday, August the 7th at about 2.30 in the afternoon. And my guest today is Darcy Costello of the Courier Journal. Uh, Darcy's been a reporter with the Courier for more than three years now. She is the Metro government reporter. And before that, she uh, covered breaking news for the CJ. So there's a lot going on uh, in town. And so I thought it would be wonderful to talk to uh, one of the reporters who's tasked with covering it all. So Darcy, uh, welcome and thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we start to talk about the news and how you cover it and what's going on and that sort of thing, I was wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, the last time we had a CJ journalist on was almost, was, I think more than three years ago, it was Philip Bailey. And it was Philip actually your, your predecessor in the same position? Are you doing what Philip used to do? Uh, yes. Um, yeah, we covered Metro government, both of us. Um, before he left, he had the job that I have now. But um, to say anyone is doing what Philip did, I think is um, a little too much pressure. I don't think anyone can really fill his shoes. But yeah, right. I did well, that, take over the position. Yeah. Well, that was my point. My point was that uh, it was we had a really great interview with Philip, and we can people that want to hear that can go back on our archive and listen to it. But uh, you obviously bring a very different perspective than Philip to this job, and so I think it'll be really interesting to um, hear how that affects your coverage of news in the city. So in order to, to understand your perspective, we want to hear a little bit about your background. So tell us, like, who are you? How did you get here? Sure. Um, I am from Maryland originally. I'm from um, in between Baltimore and D.C., um, kind of not a D.C. suburb, but my parents worked in D.C. growing up. Um, and I graduated from the University of Maryland in 2016. Um, and then I came to the Courier in June of 2017, and in between graduation and um, the job at the CJ, I had a, an internship for the AP in Sacramento, and then I did a temporary, like, legislative, state legislative reporting position in Indianapolis, and then I was really ready to kind of, like, you know, have a permanent job and not bounce around from place to place. So um, I was looking for permanent positions around when that state legislature reporting position wrapped up. Um, and I applied for the Courier Journal um, in part because I, I kind of wanted to move somewhere where I knew people, which is kind of like a <laughs> weird way to end up somewhere. But um my one of my really close friends at the time was from Louisville and I met her studying abroad in college and so I'd been to Louisville before I was like familiar with it um, enough to not be totally freaked out by the idea of moving um, and setting down roots in Louisville um, so that's kind of how I ended up at the CJ it just really like happened to have a reporting position open and I happened to be looking at the right time um, and obviously I've really liked living here enough to stick around. Um, but yeah, I'm not a lifelong Louisvillian um, like Philip. So we definitely do bring um, different experiences to the position. Um, uh, and, you know, he's great. Yeah. So also not to, you know, put you on the spot, but like, how old are you? I'm 26. Okay. So like, you know, you're, you're significantly younger than most of the people that you cover, obviously. I was listening actually to the interview that we did with Philip 
three years ago and we were j- both joking about how old we were getting. And I've, you know, I'm turning 40 this year and I'm under no illusions that I'm young anymore, but you know, journalism is in a lot of respects, a young, a young person's game. And uh, I think that's something else that's, that will make your, uh, your perspective on what's going on a little bit different than the interview we had a few years ago. So, so you're uh, from the Baltimore DC metropolitan area. You went to the university of Maryland for college. You've spent some time in Sacramento. You spent some time in Indianapolis. Like you said, you've been here for three years now. Before we start talking about what's going on on the street and in the halls of uh, government today, what, what's sort of your big picture view of the city of Louisville versus the places that you grew up? Do you have sort of a way that you would characterize it to, you know, a, a fellow reporter that you might meet at a conference somewhere else across the country? If they're like, oh, wow, you do the city hall beat in Louisville, what's Louisville like? How would you describe it for folks? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, well, compared to where I grew up, I grew up in like a, in a suburb, basically. It wasn't a big city. I grew up in Columbia, Maryland, um, which is like a planned uh, suburb area. Um, and so it's definitely different in that it just is a city. But I, I guess I would describe it to someone who also covers the city government as sort of like a, you know, mid-sized city trying to um, break into the like upper tier of um, cities that are breakouts. Like I don't, I think it probably is not like an Austin, obviously, um, but I think it's in that sort of almost up and coming class that are looking for their big break. I, I think I, I, uh, when I, whenever I talk about um, where Louisville compares that, that list of peer cities that the, um, I guess metro government compiled always comes to the mind. The Greater so Louisville like, Project, maybe, yeah. Yeah, what other um, cities Louisville thinks it's like? So I think of like a Memphis or a Charlotte and um, sort of looking for its big break to become a Nashville or an Indianapolis, maybe. Um, that's probably a pretty jargony answer. I, guess, I think it's a really comfortable city to live in from my perspective, um, but it's definitely not like, you know, um, a huge metropolitan area that's just bustling with millions of people. Right, right. Um, and then what about any sort of big picture um, perspectives on city government, the mayor and the Metro Council, and just sort of how we function or not? I mean, obviously, over time, you've gotten to know the actual, you know, the government infrastructure itself, how everything's put together. You've gotten to know the personalities. You've obviously talked and interviewed with many of us many times. You've you've seen us do our work. We've we've had coffee together, that kind of a thing. Do you have sort of a, you know, if people said the same person at the same conference said, well, how's the government in Louisville? Is it is it functional? Are they doing things right? Is it a total mess? Do you have a sort of general way in which you view the local government here? I think I came into this position at an interesting point. I think like one of the first things I covered was Fisher's reelection to a third term, Mayor Fisher. Um, and then like right away in his third term uh, that spring, there was the huge uh, budget crisis. And then right. after that kind of settled down a little bit, there was, this year, COVID and then uh, racial justice protests and civil unrest. So I'm not sure I've covered Louisville like right. it's most 
normal period. Uh, but I think um, I have, I've had to learn a lot about how city government uh, functions. And there are some things that I'm still learning. For example, when that um, park uh, sort of scandal broke out with the ex-director, it was confusing to like, be able to explain how TARC is part of the government, but also like not like it has right. its own budget and its own like governing board. So there are still things that like, um, I, I don't think government's like terribly simple to understand. So I'm definitely always learning, but um, I would say in terms of if Louisville's government is working, um, I think it's been interesting to watch um it, I think probably like since the first discussions about the budget hole um, started, like I feel like there were pretty um, forceful opinions on both sides and kind of like a divide. Um, and I think like that's in some ways persisted between like the Metro Council and the mayor's office, not super working well together at all times or um, sort of, uh, wanting to call each other on things at times. Um, yeah. And uh, I don't know. I guess I'm not sure it's always that way. I think that it has changed a little bit with coronavirus. I think there was at least temporarily less of that kind of back and forth. And then um, I think you've seen it like a come out more since coronavirus kind of. Um, well, let me, let me sort went, of draw a line, a, yeah. a line in terms of the timeline that we were talking about. And yeah. uh, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I was listening to the interview we did with Philip and I asked some of the same questions and he, he reflected on sort of the historical divide between Mayor Fisher and the Metro Council and sort of struggles mm -hmm. for power and that sort of thing. And a lot of that, I think you're saying, was especially evident in the aftermath of a contested mayoral election, one that was fairly partisan in terms of the, the parties. Uh, and a new crop of uh, Metro Council people coming in who also jumped right into sort of the, the aftermath of that. But right. I th I'm going to draw a line um, chronologically on March 13th, 2020, which is the early morning of when Breonna Taylor was killed. It's also about the time when the coronavirus moved from being something that was happening somewhere else to something that was happening everywhere. So the right. last five, yep. the last five months have obviously been something different than the previous, you know, three years that you've been in town. Before before March thirteenth, twenty twenty, talk a little bit about sort of what your job was as the Metro government reporter and the kind mm -hmm. of things that you did. And you know, by the time you do something for the second or third year here, you know, I've been a city council person for four years now you start to notice the repetition in the cycles and every time throughout the year, there's, there's the budget and then there's other things that happen and occasionally there's elections, but can you walk back and talk about generally what your job was and how you did it uh, before sort of the, the current state of affairs? Yeah. Um, I think in the before times, um, my job was a lot of, looking at how city government functions and how it impacts people's lives. Um, and so whether that was, you know, like a budget hearing, talking about how the city is spending your money or what the budget's prioritizing or what that reflects, or if it's taking a closer look at um, 
the effect that a government decision is having. I think of like, I wrote a couple of stories about the indigent burial ground that was filling up um, mm -hmm. and sort of what that meant and the people who cared about that and um, their worries about how um, it was being affected. Um, and that would entail in my day-to-day -day life, a lot of, you know, covering committee hearings and making calls, trying to understand what the status of discussions were. For example, in early January, I wrote a story about um, the push from advocates for the um, safety zone legislation that just got proposed this month. Um, uh -huh. So, you know, it's kind of like keeping tabs on what people are talking about, what's, uh, what's happening, and also keeping an eye on the mayor's office. And um, obviously, Fisher is a pretty interesting mayor to be covering right now. Um, not only because of the protests here in Louisville, but because he recently got um, elected to or selected to be the leader of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. So, was, you know, writing stories about that or um, kind of telling the city what its leaders are doing, I think. Um, and so was it mostly kind yeah. of covering current events in real time, like, you know, going to a lot of committee meetings, seeing what legislation has been filed, sort of telling the story about the legislation and people that are for it or against it or what the implications are. And, you know, I can see that just like it is for me, it becomes sort of a routine week after week, uh, you know, kind of a steady, um, kind of play by play kind of uh, a job. Did it involve a lot of, you know, like the indigent burial grounds, for example, is that something that you first heard about in the context of one of your sort of regular, you know, covering the day's events and it piqued your interest and you, you know, talked to your editors and decided to dig into it or, or was that something that came sort of out of the flow of normal events and you found something you were interested in and went and, went and chased it? Hmm. Um, well, first off, I think like covering committee meetings or whatever is a part of my job, but it's not the whole thing. I don't think I, my job is like a recording secretary for the Metro Council, you know, like that's not right. how I envision it. Um, I think especially being like a relatively new reporter, that was a useful way to pick up story ideas or to hear what people were talking about to then like lead into um, other reporting opportunities, if that makes sense. Um, and also, mm -hmm. obviously, you want to keep tabs on what's going on. But for example, like my first budget season um, with the the giant uh, $25 million, $35 million hole, um, those hearings were really useful in honestly, like learning about uh, some of the chronic issues um, in metro government, like, oh, the overtime for the jail is always outrageous, and here's what we're doing, here's what we haven't done, and so then that could then inform another story, and then, mm -hmm. you know, you pick up threads here and there to learn a little bit. Um, so I guess I, guess I, um, I think it's, it's part of my job, but it's not necessarily, that's not necessarily all it is, yeah. Do, do you split your time sort of equally between the Metro Council and the mayor's office? Um, or do you not, know do you not really like, separate it that way? Yeah, no, I don't think I really separate it that way. Um, and it's, it's hard to talk about uh, how it was working in normal times, having kind of been pulled out of that flow so much, you know, like I, I right. 
like a normal day then looks so much different than a normal day now. That, well, that's what uh, I'm, that's what I'm trying to paint the picture yeah. of for people to try to understand. I, yeah. You know, I, I follow you on Twitter. I saw you posted a photograph of the empty dark newsroom at the Courier Journal the other day. Said, <laughs> yeah. Wow, you know, this is spooky. And it's true. I'm yeah. sitting in my office at City Hall where almost nobody has been for months. Um, and there is a before and after. And so I, I guess that's what I was trying to sort of set the stage for how your job yeah. has changed and the kind of things you looked at before. And, you know, I, I, I went into this with Philip about sort of, you know, where his beat, what were the guardrails for his beat versus, you know, Andy Wolfson's or the late Martha Ellison's or someone else's in terms of who covers what and how it overlaps a little bit. Um, but, you know, it seems like for me, or, or you tell me, in any case, since March 13th, your world, I assume, first uh, became primarily about covering the city and its response to the coronavirus crisis. And then at some point, uh, the Breonna Taylor story became obviously front and center. And it appears to me like coronavirus has sort of receded in the background in terms of your reporting. But can you actually, you tell me, because you yeah. know better than I, than I did. How, how did, that, yeah. did, those, did those two sort of meta narratives, um, you know, wax and wane and flow for you in terms of your ongoing coverage? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the first like abnormal um, coverage topic that happened this year was the Tark scandal. I feel like Philip and I covered a lot of that together and like got pulled out of like our normal day-to-day -day flow to dig into like sort of what happened there. And that was in February. And I remember it was still kind of like a pressing story, a pressing concern for my coverage as coronavirus started happening. And then, uh -huh. yeah, as you say, I think we left the office on like March 17 or 18 maybe. And I, the first time I went back was uh, this week <laughs> and it was very odd, as you said. Um, and yeah, I think like, you know, the rest of the country, coronavirus kind of dominated uh, all of our worlds and really like changed them a ton. So, you know, first it was adapting to working from home and not being in the newsroom. And I think the newsroom functions, um, I think the newsroom serves a lot of purposes for reporters. Like not only are you kind of hearing what other people are working on, you're also like more able to bounce ideas off of editors. You get kind of a dialogue going about stories. And so it was a big adjustment working remotely. And, and obviously like all of the stories, it felt like uh, were coronavirus related. I worked on stories, you know, about, um, Park drivers being concerned about uh, the amount of PPE they were getting. I worked on one about, you know, what's going to happen to the homeless community if it starts to spread and what the city was doing to prepare in that area. Um, <clears throat> and then I wish I remembered the exact day, but um, Tessa, another reporter at the Courier, kind of got drafted to write a story about um, ben Crump, the the Florida attorney taking on Breonna Taylor's case here in Louisville. Mm -hmm. And I messaged her because I'd had some like passing interest in that story. Like I think I saw some of our early coverage, some of some other outlets early coverage and thought like, huh, that sounds like interesting. I wonder what's going on there. But I don't I don't often really cover 
crime stories terribly in depth. Um, is that I, like, her beat? Is Tessa on the criminal justice beat or what's her sort of assignment for the courier? No. Yeah, actually, she's just an investigative reporter. I think she got hired to focus on um, like juvenile justice issues. Okay. That is her background. Um, yeah, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt. So yeah, not crime. No, you're good. Uh, so we both kind of got tapped to write this original story. I was like, hey, like, I'm kind of curious about this. I can help make some calls. And then from that original story, you know, we got the warrants that were served that at the at Brianna's apartment and at um, other locations in the city that same night. And the story just kind of didn't go away. And as we got more and more into it, it just kind of made sense for us to continue doing it rather than have like a, a ton of reporters having a hand in it. You kind of want like some consistency on something that's as complex as this. So then suddenly we were the Brianna Taylor reporters with some other people of course, like I think, um, like Philip tapped in a couple times. Andy Wolfson was involved, um, but Tessa and I have kind of spearheaded it from. I think it must have been like early May, maybe like around Memorial Day. I think is when Crump signed on. So um, it just hasn't <laughs> hasn't slowed down at all. And then um, obviously the protest started in late May. And, and that uh, has also kind of swept some reporters off of their normal beats and into covering um, protest stories. So it's, mm -hmm. long story short, it's really scrambled our normal staffing. And I, like, personally, I found myself with one foot in Brianna Taylor coverage and one foot in, like, normal city hall type reporting. Um, well, it seems like... It's, it's, it seems like Breonna Taylor's story has become this meta narrative for the entire city, right? I mean, there's obviously the incident that occurred on the night she was killed and, you know, sort of the investigation that you, the press, is doing and that the Metro Council is doing and that other uh, state and federal criminal agencies are doing and that other, that other people are doing, you know, to sort of answer the questions, you know, how did this happen? Why did this happen? You're seeing these deeper analyses into the way the criminal justice system is working or not working, the way into which economic development is being done, the way into which sort of all these systems that, you know, interact and that are sort of wrapped up as part of government to, you know, create the city that we have, it all kind of is very, the uh, story of Breonna Taylor is all sort of a big metaphor for a lot of it. So in a lot of ways, you can't, you can't tell her story or tell the story of what's going, what else is going on in this city without them overlapping in some respect, it seems. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. I've kind of had a similar conversation with folks lately, like talking about the question of if the officers will be criminally charged and if they're not, what justice for Brianna looks like. And I think a lot of it is those larger issues that um, you touched on, you know, like the question of gentrification or economic development and how policing should change and in what ways. And I don't know, I think, yeah, like you said, it's a story even deeper, even touches. deeper stories about race yeah. and class and gender and just the big issues of, of society. So 
Um, yeah. So, so, let's, so today is August the 7th. It's been several months. Am I right in sort of saying that your own coverage has really, Brianna's story has really come to the forefront. Coronavirus is sort of a, an also ran kind of a story at this point. Is that your responsibility to really be reporting on the city's response to coronavirus at this point? For me, yeah, I don't think my priority is coronavirus. They have assigned two reporters who are like spearheading our coronavirus coverage. Um, and gotcha. yeah, I think like for a while I had a hand in it. For a while, the whole newsroom had a hand in it, but it's kind of right. been reallocated the resources. Gotcha. Um, so I, I want to ask about. Um, your, your Brianna Taylor reporting, which I think has really been excellent. The the article that you and Tessa and someone else wrote the other day about the place-based squad, I, I can't mm. remember the name of the title, but it said, you know, something about learn more about this. Is this a rogue unit or is this uh, something else? And I just thought it was a particularly well-researched, well-written article. Um, and um, a, a piece of writing that had more sort of form long form investigative journalism than sort of a sort of day-to-day -day kind of a story if you, i'm sure you remember that story is that something that can you sort of walk walk me through how you report on something like that you know people remember i think that there was an allegation made in an amended complaint in the brianna taylor's estate civil case that alleged you know some uh scheme or something that that tried to tie the incident on the night she was killed to this Elliott Avenue you know project or whatever it is but sort of walk me through from the moment that you all that allegation was made to the point where you all were really doing some in-depth reporting on it you know what, what did that look like yeah um so that amended complaint um, happened on like a Sunday night and I had taken the next Monday off. So I really wasn't a part of that initial story at all. But um, as I watched the reporting like happen from not being uh, the actual reporter, one of the big questions I had was um, what the policing unit was. And actually I'd gotten um, not long before that, like the assigned um, positions for all of the LMPD officers on, I think it was March 13th and March 14th. Um, and I'd seen that a couple of the officers had place based as their assignment. And I like hadn't heard of that, but I didn't necessarily think that was um, like terribly noteworthy because I don't, I don't like, I cover LMPD, you didn't know what but it I was. don't like. Yeah. yeah, I didn't, I don't know all, all of the ins and outs of like a pretty big department. So, um, that looking into that more was really one of the stories we'd talked about um, in the aftermath of that um, big gentrification allegation in the lawsuit. Um, and, you know, Tessa and I have like a list of stories that is very lengthy and sort of prioritizing those and figuring out which ones to turn our attention to next. Um, it's kind of a long process, but uh, we finally like roped Kala, the other reporter, into this story too to kind of um, get it get it, get it going so that all of us could like contribute pieces of it and still balance the other reporting we were doing. Um, and so I think Kala was supposed to look at 
how it works in Cincinnati, which is where Louisville um, adopted the model from. And I think I was supposed to like get the city's side of things, which ended up being an interview with um, the deputy chief and um, the develop Louisville, the head of develop Louisville. And I can't remember if there's anyone else on the call. Um, mm-hmm. And then like, you know, Tessa was pulling what the, the the lawsuit said about the unit. And so it kind of then all meshes together. And, and really I, I like that kind of a story where you kind of take a step backwards um, from just the daily coverage and look, look like closer and say like, wait a minute, like what is, this unit and what's it for and why is it functioning this way and what could have been done better and what um, what wasn't shared with the public, what should have been shared with the public, you know? So, um, yeah, it kind of came together in a piecemeal way. But well, I found the article. Together. Yeah. And I've, again, I think it's really well written and you, you all deserve a lot of, a lot of credit for it. Again, it's sort of titled Rogue Unit or Targeted Initiative, Why Police's New Place-Based Squad is Causing a Stir. And it was, uh, I think, published on July 24th, updated August 3rd. Did you, do you personally have a conclusion? You asked the question, Rogue Unit or Targeted Initiative? Does the, it, from either the reporting you did to the time it was published or since then, uh, you know, what, what's your opinion? Hmm. Hmm. See, this is where. Or, you know, or is I'm there still much, a lot more for you to learn? You know, I'll give you an out. I'll give you an out. <laughs> I like asking questions much better than I like answering them. Um, right. I think so. I think the rogue unit was. I think that's a quotation, right, from the lawsuit. Right. I think that's like we were like trying to sort of um, dig a little deeper into the allegation that it was this um, unit that was just out to gentrify neighborhoods and um, was wild and crazy um, and got these warrants and maybe shouldn't have. And um, I don't, I don't think, yeah, like you say, I I don't think we know everything about it yet for me to draw like a very thorough conclusion, but I think the story does find that um, there were some steps that the city could or arguably should have taken. Like, you look at Cincinnati's unit formation and it was uh, it had like board meetings about what areas to focus on. And it was very like, it was more public at least about why mm-hmm. they were choosing the place they were choosing. And I still think um, there are questions I have about, um, you know, why Elliott Ave, why that area was the first one they wanted to focus on. Um, I think they've said that there was like a lot of historical crime there, but, I also think part of their reasoning, if I'm remembering correctly from the story, was that there were developed Louisville efforts in that area. So like exactly how much that factored in, I don't think we know yet. And um, I don't know, I, I, I hesitate to draw. Yeah, there, like no, you're right. I, yeah. And I shouldn't, you know, there are still questions to be answered. I mean, um, you know, the Metro yeah. Council Government Oversight Committee on which I serve has launched, you know, our own special investigation into um, the entire universe surrounding the killing of Breonna Taylor, and that'll include eventually looking at Elliott Avenue. And I think there's still some legs to the story because, you know, when you first asked the administration about it, the response was, you know, that's an outrageous accusation and totally false. And yeah. there's 
know they're there. But then, you know, there was the document where you saw that it had been edited from it, you know, the, the version from last year where, where they deleted a sentence that made a reference to some sort of interaction between police and the Economic Development Agency. And so there are still questions to be answered. Uh, and the answer, it seems like the facts are that they have zero to do with each other. And I'm sure the truth is that they do not have 100% to do with each other either. And what we're trying to figure out is exactly on a scale from X to Y where there is some overlap. So um, yeah. in any case, um, so let's talk a little bit about, again, I do want to understand a little bit more like how you're actually doing your job because you're working <laughs> from home and from the computer and from Zoom, just like everybody, I assume. But, and, and I know that in the past, you know, when you work with me, you call me and ask me questions. It's not like we get together and sit on a park bench in a discreet, secret, you know, journalism, <laughs> journalist, politician kind of exchange. But um, has this made, has the coronavirus conditions made doing your reporting on the street protests almost impossible or, or very difficult because so many of so many of the stories are literally out on the street or are you getting out there and talking to people in Jefferson Square, for example? Um, kind of both. And I, yeah, I have been in my home um, and calling a lot of people, but I've, I'm calling people much more than I ever did in like the before COVID times. I feel like, like you and I one time went and got coffee. I feel like I like to make a point to get out of the office and like go meet people. Cause I feel like you um, form better like working relationships with people when you're not just a, a disembodied voice calling them on the phone all the time. Um, right. And so that kind of has been sort of eliminated from my repertoire. Um, I guess I could go and sit in the park and sit six feet away from someone in a mask, but I haven't, I haven't uh, done that yet. But um, yeah, I think so normal reporting is a lot of, a lot of phone calls, which is kind of um, not ideal, and some outside reporting. I've, you know, covered some press conferences. I've gone out to protests a couple times, um, and uh, it's it's not Im impossible to cover things uh, in a mask or distanced. But I've found a lot of the Brianna Taylor coverage that I've done is less protest focused and more like the facts of the case focused the case. or right. Yeah, right. getting people's opinions on um, like what the facts are and gotcha. sort of diving a little bit more in depth. So, um, well, let me stick to the I, case I think, then. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I think like the protests are a really interesting piece of it, but we've, lately um, had two reporters covering the protests and like the racial justice movement. And so they're really good at, you know, going down there, making connections with people and then like being able to feed quotes or feed sources to then inform our reporting so that we're not, Tessa and I are not out there um, and totally on detached the with them every single night. Yeah. Uh, speaking yeah. of the case then, um, you know, I'm sure you are, I guess my question is, how much other collaboration or communicating are you doing with other journalists around the country or around the city or around the world? Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, you know, Vice News keeps coming out with these amazing reports about what happened on the scene of the crime. The New York Times did this incredible piece uh, that, that 
traced the shooting of David McAtee and how that happened. I'm sure you're familiar with both of those stories and the sort of really mm -hmm. interesting journalism that they did and the, all the analytics that were involved there. When a story like that breaks, are you just like, wow, where did that come from? Or do, do these other outside uh, investigative sources reach out to you when they're doing their work? Hmm. Um, I haven't heard much from the New York Times, but I do think Tessa may have. Um, and <laughs> kind of weirdly, like, I feel like as a reporter, you kind of know when other reporters are sniffing around your sources because a lot of times people will like mention to me like, oh, the Washington Post reached out to me. Like, why are they contacting me? You know what I mean? Like, so gotcha. I kind of have, yeah. it's not always completely out of the blue when a story like that drops. Um, and just briefly, that New York Times video on the David McAdee shooting was like really, really super interesting. And I really liked how they did that. And they did one for the, um, I think protests in Portland too, that was like really, really cool. Um, and not really something that we have the bandwidth to do uh, necessarily. Um, but um, we have heard from some um, journalists who come from out of town. I think there was someone from like Swiss radio who like wanted to pick our brains. And um, there's a couple other people like, we've gone on a CBS or like an MSNBC or uh, those types of programs to talk about our reporting. Um, and have you been I, on national honestly, TV? Did I, like, did I miss it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what, where were you? <laughs> what, what, what shows were you on? <laughs> um, I did CBS and Tessa has too. And I think Tessa did MSNBC once or twice and Phillips done MSNBC. Um, and I think that might be it. Um, okay, cool. But yeah, I think I think Tessa also did a like a I want to say Slate or Vox podcast. I forget which one um, that was looking at the Breonna Taylor case. So it's it's nice when national outlets come in and kind of amplify local reporting because we're kind of um, the closest to the story um, and have been focused on it a lot. So it's nice to get that kind of like shout out. Um, but I, I I also saw that the New York Times is doing a documentary on the case and we keep hearing like, oh, the New York Times has interviewed this person. Oh, the New York Times spent this amount of time with this person. And so it's kind of like where I feel like a little bit of a anticipation yeah. for that. I know that um, like what we're doing isn't documentary style, so it'll be like a different format. But um, yeah. It's Do you think that any of that, any of those national, any of that national reporting is missing uh, a local lens, like for example, the Vice News pieces. I'm sure you've seen those that I, that I think have been really revealing. You know, that there's the, the most recent one that identifies seven police officers that were at the scene of the of breaking down the door to her apartment, and most people have only heard about three. And like, who are these other officers? And you know, that's something that I was really hearing and learning for the first time from Vice News. Um, it's do you know, do you, did you know that before you, did you know all the facts that they reported before they reported them? <laughs> um, I, I guess, um, I think we knew that there were more than just the three officers. I think the attention around the three officers has been because those were the ones who fired, fired their weapons. shots. Um, right. 
Yeah, so that's why they were named. But I think in court filings, there's been a lot of other people mentioned. I think the Mattingly recording mentions, like, Hoover and maybe a Mike. Um, So I I, I don't think that was, like, totally, like, breaking news in my mind. Well, and I'll just just say for myself, you know, I know that there was an interview of Sergeant Mattingly. It was a 45-minute review interview. You know, I just didn't have time to listen to it. You know, I'd sort of read articles yeah. about it, but had not listened to the full 45-minute interview myself. Uh, and I know that's probably where the, that's where they got the information from. But um, in any case, I you know I find the uh, the reporting enlightening. I'm just wondering, as w- when you look at it, if you think they're missing anything to, from the way they're telling their stories, if you think, no, look, that's this is fair, accurate, good reporting. I think generally the more eyes that are on a story the better because you're always going to have people who think to ask different questions than the questions you've been asking and that's just like I think like a city's at its best when it has a bunch of thriving media outlets not necessarily national but um, that's just my general opinion Um, and I think this case in particular there's been a lot of um, misinformation, I think partially because so many people learned about it from social media because there was such a national outcry about her case um, mm-hmm. that, you know, like, oh, she was killed in her bed when really it was her hallway or, um, or she was shot she was eight times really instead of five times. Or, right. Yeah. So I, I think um, it's nice when um, like that kind of stuff is totally accurate and it's not like over generalizing or contributing to misinformation. So I appreciate that in a national story. Um, and I think for this story, I feel like generally what I've seen from national outlets has been pretty good. Um, I think local media might be a little bit better at getting a broader uh, cross-section of the city's perspective. So like, knowing who to call for reaction or who is going to always comment but may not like be providing the full picture of like what exactly happened i think about like for example i saw an interview um i I might have been you um and councilman sexton smith talking about like the no-knock warrant um legislation and how that came about and it's like that interview was really interesting but like also there were activists working behind the scenes on that it's not just about the council people you know what i mean so it's like right having a more full picture of everything is sometimes i think what local media can do better because they're in the city and they live there and they know things and they i don't know it's not to say that like national outlets are terrible or something but uh no and of course yeah, national outlets have tremendous resources that allow them to put together fancy videos and and all kinds of stuff, mm-hmm. and they're great. But I, I agree with you. And I mean, I've, I've always tried to be a strong supporter of local journalism. I really think it's important. Uh, I always try to answer your questions when you call. I, you know, I always take your phone calls. I always try to answer them. I do that for, for everybody. Um, and I think it's really important for the city to cooperate with uh, journalists. When I was talking to Philip um, year, a few years ago now, we talked a lot about the role of social media in, our, you know, both... Mm-hmm government getting its message out and journalists getting their stories out. It seems like maybe one of the things that's even changed in terms of journalism most recently is sort of this idea of the live streamers and the citizen journalists everywhere kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, has yeah. that helped your reporting in any way or 
is there any way that we should be thinking about you know every person on the street on the scene with a with an iphone differently like how, sh how I, I i first of all i i i will say very clearly the police should not be targeting them you know we should not be treating them with violence or mm -hmm. treat, treating them as criminals if people are on the scene and peacefully recording something that's a no-brainer i'm not asking for an answer like that but in terms of uh giving them access the same way we give a career journal reporter access to to something uh, what, what's sort of the role of of these live streamers in in documenting what's going on the streets and in our city right now so far as you know you think yeah no that's a really interesting question i think uh there's a couple of people at the cj who are working on a story about the live streamers and like um where they came from and what it means and that kind of thing. So I've been looking forward to that story. Um, I think like personally, they've been pretty useful, um, especially when um, I'm not out there hundred percent of the time. A lot of their, a lot of the times there are live streamers out there that can show what's happening on the ground. Um, like I think about when Tyler Gerst was killed, there was a live stream video of that. That was like, immediately available and granted it was really graphic and um like not something that a, a, a news outlet might publish but it's helpful okay. to kind of um get a sense of what's on the ground and what's happening i think um and in terms of access i, I mean i guess it's a, it's a question about like how people get their information right like if someone's not going to watch a Courier Journal live stream, do I think it's still for the benefit of the city if they're turning, tuning into a, a different person's live stream and it's um, them just asking questions to city officials? Like, I think the more information people have, the better for sure. Um, I don't know all the answers in terms of like yeah. if they should be at every press conference or whatever, but sure. um, I definitely think that like if, if our goal as local journalists is to um inform the public and and that to me that's they are a way of doing that it, is there anything life. else that's going on besides the live streamers whether it's bloggers or podcasters or people that are writing on the internet somewhere else is there is there some other group of sort of journalists doing their thing you know amateur journalists doing their thing that we're not paying enough attention to hmm. or anyone specifically that you do pay attention to for example Hmm. You mean like about the Brianna Taylor case in particular or just in general? Well, I would say in general, but, um, you know, I mean, I would say in general, but with particularly with respect to what's going on here in Louisville. Hmm. Um, I guess like I have a Twitter list of like some Twitter. Yeah, there you go. Activist protester type folks who are often posting and like, you know, that's where I picked up on the um, coordination against Fisher becoming U.S. Conference of Mayor, uh, the the leader of that group, there was like a kind of a coordinated social media campaign against it, like urging people to call. And so like keeping tabs on that kind of thing via social media, I find pretty important just because you can't call everyone in a single day and like know exactly what's going on. Um, I'm less good at it on Facebook, I think, uh, Facebook just kind of exhausts me to be honest. So there's yeah. probably a lot of um, interesting things happening on Facebook that I don't always have the energy for. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know.
Well, so we're, you know, we're time flies on these things. So we're getting, we're running a little short. you mentioned a list of stories that you and Tessa were working on. And I don't know how it, yeah. newsrooms operate these days. If you guys have a daily Zoom call with your editors and you talk about, you know, who's writing about what today or who's writing about what this week, or I don't really know how that works. I've only seen TV and movies, but um, can you hmm. talk at all about sort of some of the if not the specific headlines, like what some of the themes of these stories that you're interested in or that you see unfolding now or that you can envision being the major storylines of the coming months? Yeah. Um, well, I think one bucket is learning more about what happened that night, right? So like the officers, all the officers who were there, um, like who was on the scene and what they saw and when they got there and, you know, that kind of piecing together the facts of the case that are still sort of unknowns. I think that's one bucket. Another now bucket let me pause real, like, really pause real quick. Is that, is that all stuff that yeah. you think, Hey, look, when the PIU investigation and the FBI investigation are released, the answers will then all of a sudden flood the public. Is that, are, are we sort of on pause there? I mean, I know you all can continue to do your investigative work, uh, so you're not just sort of waiting for them to hand over their case file, right? You're still pot poking yeah. and prodding and asking questions, but oh, yeah, clearly, definitely. clearly yeah. when the case is, when the case is pub is released publicly, that's when there will be a massive amount of new information for everybody to pour over. Yeah. I'm very hopeful that it's going to be pretty detailed and we'll get a lot of those questions answered. Um, and the CJ has a lawsuit, um, trying to get a copy of that ahead of, um, when I guess not necessarily ahead of, but um, our attorney's opinions are that when it was turned over to third party agencies from LMPD, it became final. And then when they terminated the Hankison based on the contents of the investigative file, it was also um, final action then. So right. maybe we'll get it that way. Maybe we'll get it when Cameron releases his decision. But, but then you worry about like the FBI's investigation and if they'll end up withholding right. pieces of it for the FBI. So it's kind of, I think there's a lot of moving pieces in terms of when we'll get information. Um, yeah. And there's just a lot of things I would love to know. Um, can, can, uh, can, you, can, you, can, you, can you ask a couple yeah. of those questions? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're, I'm, yeah, so we're getting ready to ask questions in our special investig in our special government oversight committee. What questions would you be asking? I, I'm really interested, and I think a lot of the uh, public is interested too in the the lead up to the warrants. So, mm -hmm. what uh, investigation was done before the detective swore the affidavit, and you know the question about the postal inspector. So, um, what agency asked the postal inspector about packages going to Brianna's house, and why did he feel comfortable um, citing that in the affidavit if there weren't packages going to her house, according right. to what research was Tony done. What, right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think PBI plays a role in that too. Like exactly how much did they know about her? Exactly how much of a suspect was she compared to the other people that they were looking at? Um, so I think the warrants are pretty interesting. I think um, th like the question of, <laughs> this is kind of a, in the weeds a little bit, but like the question of if other officers on scene had body camera, like we know that the three who fired their weapons were not wearing body cameras, but I don't know if we know definitively that like no one was wearing body cameras. I don't know if there's right. footage from officers who responded like in the very quick aftermath of the shooting who have 
um, some potential footage. I mean, like I've been denied for open records requests on that, but like I would love to know if there's something out there that's like capturing uh, like Walker coming out of the house, you know, and like right. he says that an officer told him like, too bad you didn't get shot or something and like you're going to jail for the rest of your life like who said that would be great to know um so i don't know and like who was on the scene i think is interesting in terms of higher-ups you see like a lot of officers milling around and so like and so are these all questions you've submitted to the administration before and they've said that they can't answer you because there's a investigations pending yeah, I, I don't know that like every single one of the ones I just rattled off is something that we've asked, but right. we generally have not been getting information because of the pending investigation. And a lot of those things are things like we've filed open records requests for, but um, part of what you get when, a, when there's a national story is like a million open records requests. So those have either been denied or they're stalled or um, not. We just don't like we have to wait a long time. Uh, and so when you were talking about like how Tessa and I determine our day-to-day work like some of it is planning some of it is talking to editors and some of it is just like when open records requests come back like we got two pretty interesting ones that were turning into stories um today or maybe early next week and just like well the fluke that oh it came back today you know so some of it's not entirely our own genius planning well then so uh, well so what so what are these other lines what are some of these other stories that you have in mind that you're interested in pursuing when you have time Um, Yeah, I think like another bucket of interesting um, things to keep an eye on is how this affects city government in terms of police policy, but also in terms of like the working relationship between Metro Council and the mayor, I think is going to be interesting to watch. I think your the investigation that you mentioned that Metro Council's government oversight committee is doing is going to be pretty interesting and hopefully like get some questions answered. I think so. I think it's like you have like questions about the facts of the case, and then you have questions about like um, what it means for the city, and then you also have questions about like you know um, the broader uh, societal issues that have come to light, especially in the past couple months. So like, what's the city going to do um, to create racial justice? And I think like you see some of that in like the budget or like the idea of defunding the police or like um, uh, the land development code that you guys are looking at. So like keeping an eye on those developments that are happening kind of tangentially related to the Breonna Taylor case, but not direct results necessarily of it. So I just think there are a lot of like, and then on top of all that, and then on top of all that, I assume in early 2021, all of a sudden there's gonna be a mayor's race. And so all this will be wrapped in a, you know, large theatrical political production with all sorts of different actors playing a part in trying to drive narratives of their own for for political purposes. Um, It's, you know, are you all starting to think about that? um, A little bit, partially because it's good to know, like, what people's um, motivations and things might be. So like if right. you know that they're uh, planning a run for mayor, it puts some of their actions in context sometimes. Right. Um, I have right. Like a sticky note of names of people I think are going to throw their hats in the race or could. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, I think like there, there is politics at play right now, but I, I think that's like only going to get 
um, more intense. And also, we don't know when like a decision is going to happen. So I feel like we're kind of in a bit of a holding pattern and things are going to shift again. Have you heard anything? I mean, have you heard anything? Look, I mean, my, I am a skeptic and I think that we're not going to hear anything from the attorney general until we get very close to the presidential election. I mean, I think that, I've heard that. you know, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I would be surprised in, unless there's, this is a late October surprise. And I think the thing that's so, that is so important about this and that some people don't realize is that, you know, I know people are nervous. What is going to happen here on the streets of Louisville if and when Daniel Cameron decides to indict or not? The, the truth is that what, when that decision is made, the same thing's going to happen on the streets of cities across America. Right. And this is, yep. this is a national decision. And so that, you know, leads me to think, well, who else is involved in this decision? Is it influencing this decision? What are going to be the results of this decision in the context of everything from election day, national election day on down? And, you know, I would like to think that I'm wrong and that we're waiting for the FBI's ballistic test to come back and you know, the, the, the attorney general could say in good faith, hey, look, here's our expected timeline. You know, I know people want some, yeah. because to say there's no timeline, it, it's almost, it, it seems like it, that's not a good faith answer. You know, if someone asks you, you can give them a broad answer and to, to get nothing, I think just really does damage to the public trust and confidence. But so anyway, so I'm, without going on my tangent, do you have any in, intel to the contrary or anything that would, where people could understand when you th- when, when the Courier Journal thinks they might get a decision and how? I think the Courier Journal would love to hear any information people have about when the decision is going to happen. Um, I've right. heard sort of that line of thinking of yours like two or three weeks out from the election is when he would do it to get like prime political impact for the national Republican scene. I don't know that we've like conclusively come to that determination ourselves. Sure. Um, and I think Cameron's office has been very good at staying mum about what's going on. I think the fact that you saw him come out and attribute it to the FBI ballistics tests and um, their like reconstruction is interesting because we haven't gotten any details like that up to now, you know, like it right. was like Fisher and Bashir, like, in like, taking shots at the length of time it's taking and finally he like gave us like one tiny piece of information and we're all like ah like there we go that's what's taking so long you know um but I think it'll be really interesting to see when it happens it's it's kind of a weird holding pattern to be in in like life events too like I went out of town last weekend I was like am I okay to go out of town like is it gonna come like when I'm like on the road you know so uh, I think we haven't gotten a conclusive answer, much like the rest of the public. But if anyone has a conclusive answer they want to share, I'm all ears. Yeah. Well, I know that people are on edge and people want answers and people are uncertain what the future holds in terms of the justice for Breonna Taylor, in terms of the public's response, in terms of the coronavirus, in terms of the economy. There really is sort of crises unfolding all around us. Um, and, uh, um, you know, it's, I think that your all's work is more important than ever. And, um, I know that we could, you could probably use a team, you could probably use six more Darcy Costello's working together uh, to, 
to get to the bottom of some of these stories. Uh, I know you don't have those kind of resources and you're doing the best you can. I think you're doing a really excellent job. Um, and uh, is there anything else that, you know, that you'd like to tell people or that you think that we should be thinking about as we're sort of, you know, here sitting, sitting and waiting in the dog days of summer for what's going to happen next? <laughs> um, I mean, more on the topic of just local journalism in general, I would say like, if you have story ideas or if you think coverage should be different than the way it is, like we're Louisville's newspaper and I think Louisvillians shouldn't be afraid to reach out to reporters and give them their thoughts, whether they're good, bad, in between story ideas, just general critiques. I think um, a healthy back and forth between reporters and the public is really important. So I would just make a quick plug to contact a local reporter if you see something fishy or if you want to talk about um, your life or I, the city. I know, um, I know also that the future is uh -huh. uncertain and, you know, journalists travel around and go from place to place. Do you think you're in Louisville for at least the, at least the short term foreseeable future? through the end of the year, you know, the beginning of next year, so that you'll be able to see how this story ends that you're covering right now? Yeah, I, I think I, I don't, I would, if I left before the Brianna Taylor story is finished, I feel like it would be leaving something unfinished. I really want to see how it turns out. And I really want to stick around to be able to both give my questions answered and cover what it means for the community. So I, I don't really envision myself um, heading out anytime soon, but I mean, who knows what happens, but. And then this is your, this is your city too. Do you have any hopes for the city and for this case and for just sort of, you know, our community over the next, you know, several months as we all go through whatever we go through together? Hmm. Um, I think it's really terrible that someone had to die but I guess I'm hopeful that people are having some hard conversations and that maybe people are listening more than um, they may have been earlier on and I think there's maybe like a I don't know not a silver lining because you know someone had to die and it's terrible but um, maybe that some good will come from it. I don't know. That's pretty corny, but I think you have to have like a little bit of maybe this will provide some good in order to like keep going every day. So Right. Well, like hope. we said at the beginning of the show, you're you're only 26, so you're youthful and optimistic, but um there's a lot of wisdom in, <laughs> there's a lot of wisdom in 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 the years that you have to. So in any event, we we ran a little bit long, so Darcy Costello, I just want to thank you for being on the show. Uh, I've really enjoyed working with you over the years and keep doing what you're doing and get to the bottom of all your uh, questions. Thanks so much for being. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Eight More Miles, the Louisville Metro Council District 8 podcast. I'm Councilman Brandon Cohn. Please stay in touch with our office. Visit our website at www.tinyurl.com slash D 8 and once you're there, please subscribe and stay informed to receive our bi-weekly e-newsletter.